people that have the lowest risk of heart disease, type 2 diabetes, dementia, even certain cancers are eating diets that are centered around the whole plant foods. Do you need to be 100% plant-based for health? Probably not, but can you be and can you be really healthy on a 100% plant-based diet? Yes, you definitely can. It takes a little bit of education, but then so does any diet pattern. Hello and welcome to A Slice in Time with me, Linda, host of With Limbs, What I Didn't Learn in Medical School, a platform for discussing topics crucial to health that are typically not taught, glossed over, or approached from the wrong angles in medicine and public discourse. As always, keep up to date by following With Limbs on Instagram and Twitter and check out show notes for references on my website lindadaz.com. Please note that this is a podcast for education and entertainment purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. This week's episode is an interview with Dr. Shireen Kassam, consultant haematologist and founder and director of Plant-Based Health Professionals UK. We discuss what is behind our high chronic disease rates, the evidence for eating more plant foods, how she counsels her own patients on lifestyle changes and even discuss the links between human and planetary health, health inequalities and other wider social issues. Let's get straight into it. For people that don't know you, would you be happy to introduce yourself a bit? Yeah, for sure. So um, my name's Shireen Kassam. I'm a consultant haematologist. I work at King's College Hospital in London. But more recently, that's become a sort of part-time job. I work three and a half days in the hospital. And one day a week, I work for Winchester University, where I have developed and now facilitate a course on plant-based nutrition. I thought we could just start by setting the scene a little bit. So what is the context that the plant-based movement has started in? What are the main healthcare challenges that we're facing? Yeah, so um, as mentioned, you know, a lot of my time is spent providing education on plant-based nutrition. And I guess I came about getting involved in this back in 2013 when I became vegan for ethical reasons. And that spurred me on to sort of find out a bit more about the nutritional adequacy of a vegan diet and how it was going to be best that I meet my own nutritional requirements. And I came across a whole wealth of scientific evidence going back decades that really supported plant-based diets as being optimal for human health and certainly a lot of common healthy diet patterns like Mediterranean diet and the DASH diet are really focused around the healthful properties of plant foods. And as I educated myself more around plant-based diets, I realized that in the UK, people weren't really talking about plant-based diets as a sort of a clinical tool to improve health and well-being of patients. And so back in 2017, I decided to step out of my comfort zone of being a haematologist and started giving some talks on plant-based diets and how it might be able to impact some of the illnesses and chronic diseases that we see commonly in our clinical practice. And from there, you know, once I'd sort of stuck my head out, I came across other physicians and health professionals within the UK who were really on board with this message. Um, And it fits into the wider context of 
health promotion, which I think has slightly been um, left behind in in our kind of medical education and our, the way we deliver healthcare. You know, public health and preventing illness has become very medicalized, and we've forgotten, mm-hmm. I feel, the basics of what is necessary for humans to thrive on this planet and obviously nutrition is one aspect of many but um, has become a passion of mine as I say because I felt that there was a bit of a gap within the UK of people talking about plant-based diets for this purpose. Absolutely and the American College of Lifestyle Medicine they promote a whole food plant-based diet approach in terms of managing and preventing illness. And in the UK, the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine doesn't have a like a clear stance on what diet is best. Like you said, there are several aspects to lifestyle medicine. Why the focus on nutrition as part of plant-based health professionals? Yeah, as I began to teach myself the aspects of lifestyle that would be useful to myself and my patients for promoting health and, you know, potentially reversing illness, I realised that Obviously, the main aspect that is often debated and highly charged and emotional is that of nutrition. And as you say, the lifestyle medicine movement, of which nutrition is one part, is quite established now sort of globally through the efforts of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, which formed back in 2004. And then the UK's British Society and Lifestyle Medicine formed sort of maybe I think it was around three years ago now. Within that lifestyle movement, as you say, the American College, the founding organization, is very clear that the nutrition aspects should be centered around whole plant foods, so predominantly fruits, vegetables, whole grains and legumes. But as I say, I found that in the UK, although we were all trying to promote lifestyle as a means to improve patient health, the nutrition aspect was not as consistently plant-based as message as I would like. And That was really the inception of Plant-Based Health Professionals UK, which is a community interest company dedicated to providing education on plant-based diets. As you well know, Linda, people come to a plant-based diet for different reasons. For me, it started as the ethics, but has now become more about using it as a clinical tool. But people come to it for the environmental benefits and, you know, to improve their personal health. And there wasn't a sort of an organization with credible sort of UK NHS based health professionals that was providing the sort of information that we as you know med students or health professionals look to so that we know that we are are using an evidence-based approach within our clinical practice and that's the sort of gap that I wanted to fill because the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine isn't providing plant-based nutrition education they are promoting healthful diets you know different diet patterns but for those looking for information on plant-based diets that's not available through any other means other than the sort of vegan charities which are doing amazing work but doesn't fill that gap for health professionals Mm. being vegan doesn't mean that you follow a healthful diet necessarily it's just that you don't eat animal products and so what is some of the basic science and evidence behind the benefits of plant-based nutrition and particularly whole food plant-based nutrition So as you say, you know, um, when somebody says they're going to become vegan or they are vegan, it really doesn't tell you what they are actually eating. And, you know, a diet of Coca-Cola, Pringles, crisps and Oreos would count as Mm -hmm. uh, a vegan diet. So what 
we do as plant-based health professionals is really talk about healthy vegan diet or a healthy plant-based diet, which, as you rightly say, within the literature is often referred to as a whole food plant-based diet. And that's one that is centered around fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, so um, legumes and nuts and seeds and essentially water for thirst. But, you know, tea and coffee can be healthful as well. The science around plant-based diets is not as straightforward as you might imagine because there's not a whole lot of data on people eating 100% healthy plant-based diets. Mm -hmm. So you have to look for specific studies that either have an intervention that uses a whole food plant-based diet, of which there are a handful, or look at prospective cohort studies and analyze the foods that people are eating to see whether the plant foods within the diet are contributing to health and wellness or not, as the case may be. But a lot of the information is sort of extrapolated from healthy diet patterns, such as the Mediterranean diet, which has been voted the most healthiest diet for the last three years, the DASH diet, which is a sort of therapeutic diet for systemic hypertension, and other healthy vegetarian and vegan diets. So when we bring all that information together, we know that the foods that contribute the most to promoting health are those whole plant foods. Now, do you need to be 100% plant-based for health? Probably not. But can you be and can you be really healthy on a 100% plant-based diet? Yes, you definitely can. Um, But like with any diet pattern, you need to understand the nuances of how you're going to get your nutrients and understand what components are required in the diet to meet nutritional requirements for essential nutrients like omega-3s and B12 and and, and all the nutrients you're well aware of. Mm. So it takes a little bit of education, but then so does any diet pattern. If you think about our UK diet, most of us are eating, you know, a diet full of ultra processed foods, you know, more than 50% of what goes into our shopping basket is ultra processed. And so regardless of your diet pattern, we need to be shifting diets more towards eating whole plant foods and minimizing those foods that we know have contributed to ill health, which is essentially red and processed meats, diets high in saturated fat, which come from animal products, and removing processed foods from the diet. And the science behind that is really strong. Those people that have the lowest risk of heart disease, type 2 diabetes, dementia, even certain cancers Hmm. are eating diets that are centered around the whole plant foods that I've um, mentioned. And yeah, as you say, the science is pretty strong. Absolutely. And then the gold standard for getting really good evidence and research is to have randomized controlled trials, which is quite difficult to do with food in general, which is why we look more to prospective studies and population studies and so on. And there's also the blue zones, isn't there? Yeah, no, absolutely. What are those for people that don't know? So we've learned a lot about healthy lifestyle behaviours of populations that live the longest and have the greatest chance of reaching 100 and being healthy as a centenarian. The um, researcher Dan Buettner, who coined the term the Blue Zones, spent several years looking at the lifestyle of certain regions in the world where people were living longer and healthier than anywhere else. And and these five regions have been termed blue zones. They are Loma Linda in California in North America. There's Icaria in Greece. There's the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica. 
there's Sardinia and of course Okinawa in Japan and here you're more likely to reach 100 and be healthy at 100 than anywhere else in the world and there's nine different factors that are common to these regions but when it comes to diet and nutrition their diets are predominantly centered around whole plant foods not 100% but Meat and animal products is most certainly minimized and eaten infrequently, maybe once a week and on special occasions. And their diets are centered around minimally processed plant foods, so fruits, vegetables, whole grains and beans. And and beans come out being the most healthful food amongst these diet patterns. There's nuances. In Okinawa, more than 70% of calories in the traditional diet is coming from sweet potatoes. Uh, But in Greece, they eat a lot of plant fats from whole olives and olive oil. It's not so much whether you're eating enough protein, carbohydrates and fats, you know, the macronutrients. It's really about the type of food that you're eating. And, And the science is clear that the food you need to concentrate on should be derived from plants with animal foods minimized. And that's what's resulting in their healthy life. But actually, probably the most important factor often comes down to social connections and community. And that can't be underestimated. You know, humans are sociable. We need other like-minded people around us. And uh, living in large families and having social connections is so important for our mental and physical well-being. Yes, it's really important to remember the bigger picture. But I suppose that a lot of the time, nutrition is one of the the tools like you've said before that we can use to at least get a little bit closer to the the greater picture being more in balance Mm. and I think a lot of the time people will look at research where people are consuming animal products and point to it and say look they're doing okay but typically for example like in the blue zones they'll be eating a very small amount of animal products but people use that to justify their own much larger consumption of animal products which just mm. which can't be compared at all i mean most people in the uk probably eat animal products like for every meal of the day which is absolutely not the same as the balance that they seem to have in the blue zones yeah absolutely and and you know come back to the fact that you can be healthy and reduce your risk of chronic diseases on a 100% plant-based diet whether you need to or not is a different philosophical question but you you can and it is perfectly acceptable to eat a healthy vegan diet without any animal products at all and the arguments we hear about protein and iron and zinc have been disproven decades ago it's just not necessary at all there are so many reasons now to minimize and eliminate meat from our diet absolutely I think most dietetic associations have come out with statements saying that a whole food plant-based diet that's been planned adequately is nutritionally adequate for childhood and pregnancy and all stages of life as well, which I think people might be a bit concerned about. I'm pretty sure that a lot of women who are whole food plant-based in pregnancy get a lot of (laughs) criticism from a lot of healthcare practitioners, but it is possible. Absolutely. You've raised a really important point that, you know, a 100% plant-based diet is fully supported by the major dietetic associations. And certainly that's true of the UK BDA, so the British Dietetic Association, as you say, for all life stages. But the reason that you and I promote plant-based diets actively outside of 
our workplace and through plant-based health professionals UK is because people don't have access to that information and support from their own health professional and we have a piece of work to do in terms of educating all disciplines within the medical profession about supporting their um, patients in the diet choice that they have made um, and not be swayed by their sort of prejudice that it's that it may or may not be possible to be 100% vegan or plant-based during pregnancy or growing up as a child because the science says differently. You need to really have done your reading and know how to respond to the criticism that you might get because often healthcare professionals are authority figures and it can be quite Mm -hmm. difficult if you don't have the research to point to and the confidence to say that you know that you are right Mm -hmm. so that's some great work that plant-based health professionals is doing and even for people that aren't in the medical field or healthcare professionals there are lots of um, accessible fact sheets and information and so on on the website as well which I'll of course link to in the show notes as well yeah that's right we were trying to create useful information that either a health professional can download and give to their patients or patients um, can access for themselves and and I guess you know for a lot of people patients is the wrong word anyway isn't it you know people who want to adopt plant-based diets um, and you know they don't need to be ill patients looking for information it's just you know available information for all all those who are shifting to plant-based diets for a number of reasons. I'd like to take a little step back again and talk about chronic inflammation, which is what most people now deem to be the underlying cause in many chronic diseases and many disease Mm -hmm. processes in general. Mm -hmm. If you could just go through a little bit about what we mean with chronic inflammation in the body, because it might be a bit difficult to picture, and how various foods seem to be able to impact that. We know that most chronic diseases, cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, even depression, has a common starting point, which really is inflammation. We know of inflammation as being a useful aspect of a reaction to an injury. So, you know, you cut your skin, you knock your knee, it becomes inflamed as the body tries to heal. So it becomes red and hot and um, painful. And then your body will deal with that and repair the injury through the use of the white cells and the inflammatory compounds that uh, are used to heal the body and and you'll repair. Um, But what we know about um, some of our lifestyle choices and diet and this includes things like consuming alcohol and tobacco smoking, is that it can, if you're not adopting healthy lifestyle behaviours, create a chronic inflammation. So not the acute outward inflammation that we see um, when we hurt ourselves, but this chronic low-level inflammation where the cells are stimulated to produce chemicals that perpetuate a low-level injury to cells and tissues. And because it's chronic and ongoing, your tissues don't really get a chance to repair because if you're eating an unhealthy diet or drinking alcohol regularly or smoking 10 cigarettes a day, you're continually fueling that cycle of low-level inflammation by introducing these toxins that create inflammation in your body so you know an unhealthy diet three times a day will continue to fuel this low level inflammation Um, and and the other aspect of inflammation is that um, our issues with overweight and obesity 
um, is also created through this process of inflammation because just carrying too much body fat, whether it's under the skin or around the organs, creates this chronic inflammation because fat tissue is not inert you know fat cells actually secrete cytokines and contribute to the chronic inflammation and then this inflammation if allowed to go unchecked can damage cells and contribute to creating atherosclerosis or insulin resistance or uh, neurofibrillary plaques in the brain for dementia or um, be be altering the brain chemicals in mental health disorders uh, and creating anxiety and depression, for example. Um, And we know that these external factors, such as diet, exercise, um, alcohol, smoking, etc., can either positively or negatively contribute to an ongoing state of inflammation. And when it comes to diet, um, we know that certain foods create inflammation and certain foods damp down inflammation and keep it in check. And there have been randomized studies to show this. So for example, there's been a randomized study of a vegan diet, not necessarily a particularly healthy vegan diet, but just vegan diet versus the American Heart Association diet for patients with cardiovascular disease, which would be, you know, a moderate amount of um, meat, dairy, and plus lots of whole plant foods. What that study shows was that vegan diets could significantly lower your level of inflammation in the body and to a greater degree than the the standard advice from the American Heart Association. And the reason being is because whole plant foods are full of plant chemicals, so phytonutrients that act as anti-inflammatory compounds. And there are antioxidants and thousands of other compounds that we probably haven't even discovered yet that act to dampen down this inflammation in the body and keep our inflammatory cells in check and prevent injury to cells and tissues. Mm. Yeah, and I find all of that stuff so fascinating that just what you eat can impact the state of your body as well. We know that we don't need to focus too much on what macronutrients you're getting and what ratio, Mm. but typically it's not a great idea to be cutting out an entire macronutrient group. So yeah, I was wondering if we could just touch on why the typical low-carbohydrate ketogenic diets, which are quite trendy at the moment and have been for a couple of years, why they are not that great for the body. And I'm sure that we'll also discuss animal products in that context. I think some of the issue with our diet and diet education to date really has been an over-focus, as you say, on how much carbohydrate, how much protein, how much fat. I mean, all that is essentially irrelevant if you are choosing to eat a good variety of the right types of foods and those foods have to come predominantly from plant foods. They're the ones that have been shown time after time, including in in randomized studies, to promote health. And so then trying to alter combinations of macronutrients, A, is completely unsustainable, and B, is not really science-based. You know, there have been studies of low-carbohydrate versus low-fat, and really they have not shown 
a benefit of different proportions of macronutrients over the others. It's more about where you're getting those macronutrients from. So if you're having a high carbohydrate diet, predominantly from refined grains like sugars and white flour and white pasta and white rice, to the exclusion of whole grains and beans and fruits and vegetables, then you're not going to do your health any good. But it could be plant-based. If you're low carbohydrate and getting most of your nutrients from animal foods and animal protein and animal fat, your long-term health is going to deteriorate because long-term studies have shown the diets centered around animal protein, animal fat, and devoid of healthy carbohydrates from whole plant foods actually increases your risk of dying early, dying of cardiovascular disease, and increases your risk of cancer. So these conversations about what your macronutrients should be are irrelevant. Um, but of course, as with any sort of, you know, fad diet or popular diet, there are some short term benefits. Um, so when somebody who's been eating the typical Western diet, which, as I say, is typified by ultra processed foods, when they move to for example, a low carbohydrate diet, they'll be getting rid of quite a lot of refined carbohydrates, um, free sugars, um, getting rid of their donuts and biscuits and, you know, white bread, etc. And therefore, they'll probably be doing better um, if they're replacing that with some whole foods, even if it is, you know, meat and dairy to start with. So the short term benefits will be present and it doesn't matter how you lose weight in the short term you will benefit your glucose control for example in diabetes and even potentially bring down your cholesterol levels in the shorter term if you're losing weight but what we should be concerned about is the knowledge we have about long-term health you always have to ask yourself is this diet going to protect me from the top killer of men and women? And that's heart disease. Mm. And if you don't know that, then you shouldn't be giving it a go. You shouldn't be risking your heart health on a whim because you want to lose weight or come off your diabetes medicines, because we know the healthful way to do that. We know what protects your heart in the longer term. And that is a diet that minimizes red meat and processed meat, saturated fat, and emphasizes whole plant foods. Um, so yeah, the low carb diet is taken off because in the shorter term, you can lose weight by losing water, which is part of the glycogen stores. And we know the studies have shown that you actually lose lean muscle mass as well in the short term. So some of that weight that you're losing initially is from water and muscle mass. And of course, because you're getting rid of some of the refined carbohydrates, but replacing those carbohydrates with animal foods such as red meat, eggs, dairy, which is often done, is not going to, in the long term, promote heart health and is certainly not the diet that's compatible with cancer prevention. It's a worrisome trend that we're sort of looking for short-term fixes without being concerned about um, the long-term implications of our diet choice. Yeah, totally. Like you say, we know that heart disease is our number one killer and plaques in your blood vessels contribute to so many other disease processes as well. So kidney disease and strokes and dementias and so on. So absolutely, that should be our number one priority. And I think it's so important that you mentioned as well that it's unsustainable to follow a low carbohydrate diet, and but also just in general, some of the other fad diets, because if you can't do it in the long term, there's really no point in engaging in it in the first place, which was the mm. topic of episode four. 
Yeah, no, that's right. And, you know, we shouldn't be talking about dieting and we should be talking about healthful ways to eat and the foods that contribute to a healthy diet and um, making sure that we get all those foods every day. And, you know, it doesn't matter so much what combinations and how much, as long as you're sticking to the high nutrient, low density, low calorie density, whole plant foods. And then, you know, a little bit around the edges, you know, the frills probably don't matter, but, you know, 80, 90% of the diet needs to be centered around whole plant foods. Um, And, you know, as you know, it's so there's there's so much variety out there it's not a restrictive diet pattern Mm. when done correctly and with a smaller bit of bit of knowledge and some cooking skills it is hugely varied and is not restrictive in the same way as counting carbohydrates or saying i'm going to reduce fat it's just not complicated Mm. and so will be sustainable but you make a good point that you know a healthy diet pattern is is only one that you can actually stick to and so you have to understand why you have decided to follow this not because you know somebody on morning television told you you must eat like this and Mm -hmm. you said you'll give it a go because that's not enough motivation you have to educate yourself well enough to know that you're making those choices for the right reasons and whether it be the environment or your health or um, preventing diabetes because you know it's in your family or because you know that it's not ethical to um, eat animals when we don't require animal foods in the diet. You need to know your reason to really be able to come back to understanding why you're making those diet choices. Totally. So important as well to think of having the just the general whole food plant-based approach and having that be what you aim for mainly and then you know it doesn't matter too much what the other stuff is but of course even within the vegan world there are lots of fad diets too so it's important to be aware of I don't know there's like raw till four and being fully raw uh, very high carb and very low fat with like a Mm. too strong focus on that but it's really not that difficult once you get to it and when you hit like the right spot and it's not restrictive there's just so many different plant foods you can eat I mean animal products there aren't that many but plant foods there are so many you could choose from and a lot of cuisines already are heavily plant-based absolutely our desire for eating meat is so mixed up in in different things but as you say most um, traditional diet patterns have by necessity been predominantly plant-based you know we've been growing food and eating easily accessible in-season fruits and vegetables for centuries Mm -hmm. it's only in recent times as you know, the food industry has taken off and really controlled our choices. And, you know, there's so much money now to be made out of a a food or or a food group that our diets have shifted towards processed foods and to animal heavy diets. But I think it's useful to make one point. I mean, I think deciding on a diet that's useful for promoting health in the long term and deciding on that early on and keeping well and avoiding disease. And if you're well and healthy and don't have any illnesses, then, you know, 100% plant-based diet will give you some of the best chance you have of reducing chronic illness. Um, not You're not going to prevent every illness, but mm. it is compatible with um, long and healthy life. But more and more, we're seeing the consequences in our clinical practice of decades of eating an unhealthy diet. And people I see in my clinical practice, people with lymphoma, so cancer of the lymphatic system, don't just turn up with lymphoma. 
they are often overweight, they have type 2 diabetes, they have cardiovascular disease, they've often are on um, antidepressant for mental health illnesses. So decades of not eating well result in an array of illnesses. And if you really want to have a chance to arrest the disease process, and if not reverse, then you have to be really, really strict. Your intervention needs to be drastic. Um, because in that situation, small changes of, you know, increasing the number of fruits and vegetables a day is, is just not going to cut it. You really, really need to then have a really aggressive overhaul of diet and lifestyle. And that's where those seemingly restrictive diets come into play. The diets used by Dean Ornish and Cordell Esselstyn to reverse coronary heart disease. Um, And yeah, you know, we can talk about actually reversing the atherosclerosis within the blood vessels. Mm. Those diets appear really restrictive because they're really low fat and require you to only use whole plant foods um, and no cooking oil and, and avoid toxins like caffeine and alcohol. And then that seems restrictive, but, um, you know, It's kind of like, what are you trying to achieve when you've had decades of contributing to the generation of chronic illness in the body? Something drastic needs to change. But Mm. that really restrictive diet of no oil, no alcohol, no fat doesn't need to be the population approach. Um, But that's assuming we're starting at a healthy point, which actually you know, in our clinical practice is not the case. So sometimes we do need our patients to make really intensive changes, um, which really requires an investment of time and effort and, you know, skilling up on cooking and really bringing your whole family along. Because uh, as you know, it's very difficult Mm. to change your diet pattern as a single person in, in a family of four where everyone else continues to eat the same way and doesn't support your diet choices. So um, I, I think there are different circumstances. But yeah, on a population level and for every day and for all those healthy young people who are concerned, rightly so, about climate change and climate health and preventing you know, climate catastrophe, adopting a plant-based diet is not restrictive at all and can be full of an array of healthy foods and you know, macronutrients and fats, and as long as they're coming from healthy sources, really doesn't matter so much. Plant-based health professionals don't say you have to follow a Dean Ornish type diet or a Esselstyn diet. We say you need to center your diet around whole plant foods and you find your way that's right for you. Thank you for that. That's a really important point. How would you typically approach this topic with patients and how would you explain to them what type of diet that you think would be beneficial for them if they've never heard of this before? My practice is quite skewed. I'm seeing people with cancer essentially and therefore they come with their own motivation as do their family and if they're lucky enough to have family support you know family members are often trying to introduce healthy food so often the motivation is there the difficulty comes with making changes when your whole life has been turned upside down by the fact that a you have cancer and b you're going to need some pretty intensive treatments to Mm. get over this problem and coming to terms with the fact that you may not get through it it might be that we can't 
cure this illness and this will be life limiting. So all those factors are really important when talking about lifestyle change. And it's really important not to take on any messaging that might make it seem that you're blaming somebody because certainly in my specialty, there's no blame to be apportioned at all. You know, lymphoma is not preventable through diet and lifestyle. Yes, you can perhaps reduce your risk marginally, but essentially lymphoma is not typically thought of as a lifestyle induced illness. So it's all about trying to improve health and well-being in a way you can. And, and, you know, everyone does ask, what can I do? Um, But you really have to gauge where somebody is in their ability to make changes. Um, And I I never use the term vegan. I never use the term vegan. I I say healthy plant-based diet in line with the recommendations by the World Cancer Research Fund, which says that anyone who wants to prevent cancer, and even if you've got a diagnosis of cancer, should center their diets around fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts and seeds. And I say, you know, you should be eating plant foods as the majority of your your meals and using animal foods, dairy, eggs, if that's what your choice is, as a condiment um, and really sort of crowding out those foods and replacing them with nutrient dense um, whole plant foods. And then, you know, I point to resources. I have no major issues with the UK Eat Well Guide. It's very adaptable to being predominantly plant-based. It even gives soya on the depiction of the plate as an alternative to dairy, and it emphasizes the importance of choosing plant protein over animal protein. And as you know, plant-based health professionals has produced, you know, the plant-based mm. eat well guide. But as I say, talking about emphasizing plant foods and minimizing those other foods because nobody's going to change overnight. And obviously I counsel about the other evidence-based practices that can help people get through their cancer journey, which is if they're not already, you know, taking up some gentle exercise, both cardiovascular type exercise and also some strengthening exercises. And then, you know, concentrating on their mental well-being, you know, it's a complete upheaval um, having a cancer diagnosis so making sure they have social support and doing activities such as mindfulness and breathing exercise that can help the lower stress levels and and we know does have an impact positively on things like inflammation and cancer outcomes I tell people to avoid alcohol because it causes cancer. I mean, that's the bottom line. If people want to drink now and again, that's a personal choice. But I do tell people the truth about that. And obviously counsel about stopping smoking, which is often difficult in the shorter term. But there are quite a lot of NHS resources now to help people stop smoking. But I think you have to meet people where they are. Um, And if you get the impression that people are really not going to change their diet because they love their steak and they love eating bacon and eggs for breakfast, I personally don't push it because, you know, preaching doesn't help um, with the doctor-patient relationship. You know, you might get a chance further down the line when they're more open to this, or perhaps uh, you you might have suggested a book or a movie or something that they watch, and they might have done that, and they'll come back to you and then discuss it further at that point. So those are the sort of things I talk about in the clinical setting. Great. I really love that holistic approach. It's so important to remember all the other things and not be judgmental and just be empowering patients with their alternatives and telling them they're about their choices and options and what can be beneficial for them. Yeah, for sure. In terms of plant-based health professionals, 
What mm-hmm. are some of the things people can do to get involved and learn more or just learning more about what we've been talking about today? Thank you for asking. So, I mean, I guess our aim is to be the go-to source for education on plant-based diets, whether it be for maintaining health or using it in clinical practice. So we're a membership organisation, so you can support our work, which is mainly run by volunteers. It's more about building a network of like-minded people who can support each other in their journey, whether it be for personal reasons or in their clinical practice using nutrition as a tool. So join as a member. And then regardless, we have a lot of free resources online. So we've got the fact sheets, we've got a whole array of videos under our health zone section. And then most recently, we have started fortnightly live webinars accessible and available to everyone for free. And then the recordings are available on our website to our members only. And they're CPD accredited by the British Society of lifestyle medicine for any medical students that are listening as well i've developed and facilitated a a course specifically on plant-based nutrition at winchester university it's cpd accredited and for medical students i'm happy to offer a reduced price by emailing me directly for a specific link and i would recommend that anyone that's interested in lifestyle medicine or going to go into general practice for example would think about doing this towards the end of their training um, and get some extra cpd and knowledge on the topic Mm, yeah and i did that course at the end of 2019 and i really enjoyed doing that as well thank you When do you think would be the right time for medical students to take that course based on your sort of experience? Obviously, we don't really get anything of the sort at university. And I do think that as a medical student and someone that's done like your A-level biology and stuff like that, I think even just like from the first year of university, probably you would be Mm. able to, to do those things. Yeah, good. It does assume a a little bit of background knowledge on the whole sort of broader knowledge that's easily accessible out Mm. there on plant-based diets and reading books like How Not to Die by Michael Greger or Proteinaholic by Garth Davis. And actually the book that was pretty transformational for me was Joel Fuhrman's book Eat to Live. That really got me excited about using plant-based diets for clinical purposes, essentially. It's so exciting at first when you find out about all the evidence and research, but then unfortunately it's very frustrating that it's not as mainstream as it should be and not supported by the NHS in the way that it should be. I don't know if you want to mention some of the campaigns as well that plant-based health professionals have been behind. From the point of view of the NHS, I I guess, you know, it needs to be appropriate and accessible for the whole of the population. Um, And, you know, I guess the guidance from the NHS is based around public health recommendations and our use of the Eat Well guide. But Mm. I do think now, um, or certainly in the last sort of five to 10 years, the knowledge has really shifted towards being able to actively promote plant-based diets as the optimal means to keep well and um, prevent illness. And I think um, much of the guidance is fallen into the trap of a little bit of everything is fine, but we know that human behavior doesn't really allow us to moderate The foods that we intuitively like, salty, fatty, sugary foods, are addictive. 
And it's very difficult to, you know, moderate a food that's truly addictive in the same way like tobacco smoking and alcohol foods can be so addictive. And when you put together the marketing and the promotion that goes behind this, people don't actually have the ability to make conscious choices because we're so drawn to these foods that are are intrinsically unhealthy for us. And so for me, I think it is an all or nothing approach and really just being honest and saying, you know, meat is not necessary and eating as much from plant foods is optimal and obviously removing processed foods from the diet. You know, we do have mixed messaging. We still talk about the essentialness of dairy for calcium. Mm. It's not the truth any longer. It never has been. But, you know, the dairy industry has done such a good job at convincing the health community that calcium comes from dairy, full stop. It's an example of how it's then become so entrenched in all our guidelines, all our recommendations. But actually, the science doesn't support that. And it was great to see that paper in the New England Journal of Medicine called Milk and Health. And I hope you can link to that actually in your your notes. Uh, Basically, summarizes the data on dairy and health. And concludes that it's not essential and you can easily meet your calcium requirements from other foods. So I've sort of buried down into one example there, but it's just the way that the NHS is sort of still a bit behind in actually communicating the science. The development of a guideline is probably around two years. And so it's sort of almost out of date by the time you get to read them. And then they don't get updated for another five years. So you're always sort of chasing your tail. And I think the messaging around plant-based diets, the need to shift to that is, is just not caught up within the NHS. And if the NHS is not putting that information out there, educating a whole new generation of health professionals is going to take another decade, isn't it? So it's complicated. Um, And yeah, so, you know, we would love to be able to influence policy. On our website, we've got a little section of campaigns. The first campaign that we would like to get going is removing processed food from hospitals. Hospitals should be a place of education and highlight the best practice. And if you carry on serving a food that's so detrimental to health, you are giving out the wrong messages. If we tell patients that processed meat causes cancer and is is contributing to over 5,000 cases of colorectal cancer in the UK a year, yet we allow the NHS catering services to serve it on an NHS premises, that's to me is almost like allowing people to smoke in their hospital room. It's just the wrong message and we're, we're not using that teachable moment. And then we wrote to the government demanding from them to promote plant-based diets for human health, but also for the sustainability of the planet, because climate change is not just about damaging the planet, it's also damaging human health. And then thirdly, talking about the whole farming system, the government subsidises meat and dairy farming, but doesn't subsidise the farming of plant foods. And in the UK, we barely produce 30% of our fruits and vegetables. We're importing virtually all our healthy foods, and yet we're subsidising the production of meat and dairy, which is not Mm. essential in the diet. And the problem with our diet is it's lacking in plant foods. So we want to see the subsidy removed from animal foods and shifted over to making fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, accessible, affordable um, for all in our society. 
It shouldn't be based upon your financial means. It should be based upon what is healthy and making those healthy choices need to be on agricultural policies and health policies. Thank you so much for that. That's great. I I love that we started talking more about nutrition and ended up showing that even when you do talk about nutrition, you end up talking about the bigger picture too. Because of this podcast being called What I Didn't Learn in Medical School, Mm -hmm. what is one thing that you wish all medical students and young healthcare professionals learn that they don't seem to be doing? From my personal experience, I guess, understanding all the factors that have gone into getting that referral into your clinic room, as it were, you know, the fact that you're seeing that person in one point in time does not reflect what aspects of their life has determined the reason for their illness, if that makes sense. And Mm. that comes back to all those upstream contributors to health and well-being, social and economic disparities and influences on our health outcome and lifestyle behaviours and really looking to the root cause rather than being the type of health professional that sees a symptom and treats a symptom. I wish I had understood better the whole person approach of what has resulted in that person develop type 2 diabetes or heart disease. It's not genetics, it's not just bad luck, it's the whole impact of decades of lifestyle and social economic exposures, a lot of which is not in that person's control and is Mm. due to outside influences. But to understand that will allow you to better understand the person and then be able to support that person to make the necessary changes. And that might involve, you know, helping them remember to take a tablet every day, but it also will help you address the root cause of the illness. The other thing I think is really useful to remember is just how privileged we are as health professionals and to use that privilege in order to fight for what's right for your patient. So to make sure that your patients are not disadvantaged because they can't afford fruits and vegetables or because they never learnt what a healthy diet was. So we really as a profession need to use our voice to extinguish these inequalities in our society and I think that will make us a better profession. Thank you so much for that that was great and thank you so much for coming on the podcast with me as well I really appreciate that. No it's been a pleasure Linda and thank you for highlighting all these important issues I I just wouldn't have had the where for all or the maturity to be doing this as a student and it's amazing the issues you're highlighting and you're going to have a real impact so thank you. Oh, thank you so much. And that's our episode. If you listened all the way to the end, thank you. I hope you enjoyed it and learned something new. If you did, I would appreciate if you shared the podcast with someone you think might enjoy it too. Get in touch at Whitlims on Instagram and Twitter and give me a follow to stay up to date. You can find Dr. Kassam under the handle Plant Based Health Professionals. Remember to check out the show notes for links to everything discussed in the episode and more. I wasn't at the time of recording, but I'm now actually also a student representative on the Plant-Based Health Professionals Board, so please feel free to contact me to find out more about opportunities for students, the Plant-Based Nutrition course, membership or anything else. Again, thank you so much for listening, I hope the rest of your day is fabulous, and that I have you back as a listener on the show next week. Bye!